We are Mike and Zoe. Hello. Hi. And this is the Stories of Strangeness podcast. Tonight, we're going to tell you a creepy Halloween tale. Yep. Creep us out, Mike. Okay. There is nothing creepier to me than true crime. And the creepiest of all true crime cases is one involving a deranged mind, murder, mutilation and grave robbing. Here is the story of a man whose crimes are so heinous that he has served as the inspiration for many of Hollywood's most evil and terrifying villains, including Leatherface from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Norman Bates from Psycho, and Buffalo Bill from The Silence of the Lambs. I give you Wisconsin's Ed Gein. Ed Gein lived in Plainfield, Wisconsin with his mother and brother, Gein's mother was an overbearing and highly religious Lutheran matriarch who ruled over her two boys with an iron fist. Ed was not allowed to make friends at elementary school. His mother punished him if he tried, and both teachers and classmates recall him being quiet and shy, but with some odd quirks and mannerisms, such as suddenly bursting into seemingly unbidden laughter, apparently amused by his own internal monologue. Both Ed and his brother Henry were confined to the family farm when not in school, further stunting any chance for socialising. Ed's mother would read to the boys from the Bible, often concentrating on passages from the Old Testament that dealt with death, murder and divine retribution, and would preach to the brothers that the world was inherently evil, that drinking and immorality were instruments of the devil, and that all women were prostitutes. Presumably, she'd never heard of the Epimenides paradox, where Epimenides, who was from Crete, declared, all Cretans are liars. Or even the famous Groucho Marx line, I don't care to belong to any club that will have me as a member. Other accounts have her excluding only herself from the world's oldest profession. Ed's brother died under mysterious circumstances, apparently succumbing to asphyxiation when a routine burning of marsh vegetation went awry and the fire got out of hand. So far, so what, you might think. But although Ed reported his brother missing after the fire department had handled the blaze, authorities concluded that Henry had died before the fire had got out of hand. And also, he had bruises on his head. Ed was suspected as the killer, and had led the search party to the spot where Henry lay, despite reporting him as missing. But this and the bruises alone were not sufficient evidence to convict or even arrest Ed, and so the death was labelled an accident. A few years later, Ed's mother passed and Ed began to slide inexorably into madness, although outwardly little had changed. Ed began to renovate the farmhouse, boarding up the rooms that his mother had used and moving himself into a single room off the kitchen, which quickly deteriorated into something that would horrify even the hosts of hoarders. During this time, Ed kept mostly to himself, becoming interested in Nazi cannibal adventure stories and Death Cult magazines. If a subscription to Death Cult Cannibal Nazi Adventures Monthly isn't a warning flag, then I don't know what is, but it was a different time, I guess. In November of 1957, local hardware store owner Bernice Warden went missing, She was reported missing after her store remained closed all day, despite having been seen there the night before. The deputy sheriff was her son Frank, who entered the store 
and found the cash register open and blood on the floor. The last sale at the store had been to Ed Gein for a gallon of antifreeze. Investigators headed to the Gein farmstead, arresting Ed and searching the property. The property yielded much more than just Bernice Warden's body, which had been strung upside down in his shed and gutted like a hunter's catch. She was decapitated, her head having been hung in a burlap sack inside the home, and her heart was found hanging in a plastic bag near the stove. The body of another local woman, Mary Hogan, was found in a similarly dismembered state. If only that were the worst of it, but Ed's depravity knew no boundaries. Ed Gein's farm home was littered with human body parts. Bones beyond number were found, both whole and in fragments. Skulls topped his bedposts, and bowls and kitchen utensils were found that had been made from skulls. Worse than this, Ed's Nazi fascination had also borne a plethora of items crafted using human skin. Authorities found a wastebasket made from skin, chairs upholstered with skin, nine masks made from actual faces, a belt studded with female human nipples, a pair of lips repurposed into a window shade drawstring pull, a corset made from a human female torso, and a lampshade made from a human face. There were also various dismembered body parts found in the house too, including fingernails, organs in his fridge, ten female heads with the tops sawn off, four noses, and the genitals of nine women were found in a shoebox. The game was up for Gein, who, when asked, immediately told police that he had made at least 40 visits to three local graveyards to dig up corpses for his macabre obsession. He claimed that he had made these trips while in a daze-like state. Police were unsure whether to believe Gein and exhumed the bodies of eight women, all of whom were found to be mutilated. Missing body parts included faces, breasts, genitals and strips of skin. Gein had made these nocturnal excursions with a trusted friend known only as Gus after reading about the deaths in the local paper, sometimes raiding their graves only hours after the funerals and carefully replacing the soil to avoid suspicion. Gein spoke of his desire to create a woman suit after his mother's death so that he could become her, a fact that informed the actions of Buffalo Bill in Silence of the Lambs. He told police how he would wear the skin shirt around the house at night and place female genitals over his own groin to complete the illusion. Despite the horror show in the house, Ed was only ever charged with one murder, that of Bernice Warden in 1957. According to Judge Robert H. Golmar, Gein was not tried for the murder of Mary Hogan due to prohibitive costs, despite Gein admitting to the shooting of Hogan. Gein's initial confession was also ruled to be inadmissible after it was alleged that Art Schley, Washura County Sheriff, had assaulted Gein during questioning, apparently banging Gein's head and face against a brick wall. Schley died only a month after testifying against Gein from a heart attack. Rumours circulated that the coronary failure had been brought on by having been traumatised by the horrors found at the house, as well as stress from having to testify. A friend of Schley's opined that he was a victim of Ed Gein as surely as if he had butchered him. Ed pled not guilty by reason of insanity and was declared unfit to stand trial. A retrial was attempted in 1968 with doctors recommending that he was able to stand trial, 
but despite being found guilty, Ed was once again declared insane and spent the rest of his life in a mental hospital. He died of respiratory and heart failure due to cancer at the Mendota Mental Health Institute on July the 26th, 1984. What do you think? Wow. Yeah. That's like... Yeah. It's, it's like something. <laughs> it's like something. Um, you have all these like horror movies and well, let's use Silence of the Lambs because I think that's probably the one that I'm most familiar with. Yeah. And you think, God, oh, dear, where must they have pulled all of these awful things from to get this one person? Real life. When, but, but when actually that person inspired three or four separate different yeah. like horror genres. So the idea of Leatherface wearing human skin masks yeah. came, from, came from him. The woman bodysuit for Buffalo Bill came from Gein. Yeah. The idea of Norman Bates wanting to become his, his mother, mother come, came, came from, from Gein. So it's not like, oh, we've taken these three or four different horrible real-life people and made them into one terrifying person for a film. It's completely the opposite way around. It's, yeah. And his his just, crimes were so awful. Wow. Yeah. Like... There have been several films made about the life of Ed Gein, which you can look up on IMDb and the like. Yeah. Some of them take more liberties than others, but most of them get the kind of gist of the story. Do you know how old his brother was when he was... When he mysteriously died? Yeah. I can't quite remember how old his brother was, but Ed was 38. 38? Oh, because I thought that was quite a jump going from school to then. But I suppose if they didn't go out and do anything, not much happened. No. No, and, and because he wasn't allowed to make friends because his mother punished him if he did, then, yeah, it was pretty much So between school and, and 38, school. he literally, what, did nothing? No, he worked. He worked as a local handyman and things like that, and he worked on the farm as well. Yeah. But, yeah, they were a very insular family. Basically, the father was a deadbeat and a drunk, and he left, I think, very early into Ed's life, if not possibly even before he was born. I can't remember off the yeah. top of my head. But yeah, he left and the mother just decided that everything was awful and she was going to teach that to her kids. I enjoyed that she thought all women were prostitutes apart from herself. Yeah. What an interesting, lovely lady. Yeah, it's so, definitely a tale for Halloween, that one. So if he was 38 when his brother died, yeah. how old was he when his mum died? It wasn't that much longer. I think it was only like something of like two to four years after his brother died, his mum died. And there are no details about that. She just passed away. I yeah. Think. Well, he would have been approximately 40. Yeah. 40, so she was something like that. So even if she was like she might 25, she would have been, she would have probably been 60 plus ish, yeah. you would think. So that could have been natural. Or he could have just got sick and tired of her and thought, actually, I'm quite good at this now and bumped her off. Maybe. But, um, yeah, I think I think there was probably more of a reverence towards her than that. So I don't think he probably killed her because a lot of his other crimes were kind of almost geared towards trying to transform himself into her. Because, well, that's because she made herself out to be God. And that whole quote of mother is, is the, the name, name for God, God on, on the lips, lips of all children, children yeah. seems to be quite fitting, scarily so. Definitely. But yeah, not the sort of guy you want to pop over and have a cup of tea with. Not, not No, if I'm looking for a handyman... I'm going to be... Gein Enterprises is not who you're going to be calling, no. No, for anything. Yeah. I think the worst thing in there for me is the belt studded with nipples. That was quite... Which is... Yeah. And then the pair of lips that was used as a drawstring pull for for one of his window blinds. Yeah, I'm not... So you can guess he didn't have many visitors because, A, the the photos I've seen of the the place is disgusting. Well, if he was living in one room... Also, there was parts of people 
all over the house. Although, and and again, this is just my my brain working, it was quite clever to rob graves that had only just been... Yeah, because like, you wouldn't Because you wouldn't notice the disturbed earth, would you? Be, yeah, exactly. It's not going to be disturbed earth because it was disturbed. Because it was disturbed earth, yeah. Yeah. And also... So it was quite smart I mean, that's, to do that. And apparently Gus... Do we know um, who Gus was Gus no, found? Well, Gus went into a nursing home at one point, apparently, and it was at that time that Ed stopped robbing graves and murdered Bernice Warden because he couldn't get body parts in the way that he'd done it previously because he didn't, he didn't have, have Gus to help him. So do you think Gus was an older person yeah. then? Yeah, but I, I couldn't find any real detail on Gus at all, but Ooh. yeah. And One thing was, though, that he did deny any necrophilia, so... Well, that's nice. Yeah. Even though he had a box full of fannies. <laughs> Which, for the Americans, is oh. not your butt, it's the other one. <laughs> the other one. The other Vagina. One. That's Vulva. So, yes, he had a box full of vulva. And Noses, heads with the tops cut off. That's And uh, skulls on his bedposts. Honestly. Faces. Chairs, I've seen a photograph of the chair upholstered with human skin. That was not fun to look at. Yeah. Yeah, that's um, quite gross. Talk about your all-time messed up people. Thanks, love. You're welcome. Did it creep you out? (laughs) It's made my skin crawl, yeah. Exactly. So that's why I picked it, because I knew it was about the creepiest tale I could possibly tell. And if you've enjoyed this, we have been the Stories of Strangeness podcast and probably will continue to be. Well, let's hope. Yeah. So if you've enjoyed this, or actually, no, I'm not going to say that. If you've enjoyed this, please don't contact us. (laughs) You can find us on your favourite podcast player. And you can also find us at storiesofstrangeness.com. Yep. We're Stories of Strangeness on Facebook and Instagram. Yep. And we are at So Strange Pod on Twitter. So look us up. Come find us. Check us out. Cool. Bye. Bye. Hey guys, this is Eric and Jessica Carrier, the hosts of the Prairie Land Paranormal Podcast. And we are excited to be part of this Halloween special. We are going to share with you one of our favorite spooky tales, a chilling legend from our own state of Illinois, the legend of Resurrection Mary. Resurrection Cemetery is in Justice, Illinois, a suburb of southwest Chicago. It was consecrated in 1904 by the Roman Catholic Church. The cemetery is large and covers 540 acres. In fact, it is one of the largest cemeteries in the United States, and its triangular shape and weird happenings have dubbed it the Resurrection Triangle. One of the cemetery's most beautiful but daunting features are the two large brass metal gates that greet its visitors. The gates long greened from oxidation and time. In 1976, a close inspection of the gates and a trained eye would have revealed something very unusual. Two of the bars were bent, a hand's length apart, and scorched with two black sooty handprints, complete with fingerprints. The prints had been discovered by Officer Pat Homa of the Justice Police Department after responding to a call that a woman was locked in the cemetery and shaking the gates in an effort to get out. While the city of Chicago was quick to say that it was caused by a work truck that had backed into the fence, locals told a very different story. The marks, of course, were caused by Mary, the cemetery's resident ghost. Crowds of people gathered and came to see the marks, and soon 
the city cut the bent bars out and replaced it with wire fencing until the bars could be straightened and replaced. Once the bars had been straightened and replaced, they still prominently displayed the blackened areas that seemed to never oxidize back to the gate's green color. They remained in that state until 2002, when the cemetery replaced the entire front gate. The story of Resurrection Mary is a story of a beautiful blonde, lost love, a lonely highway, tragedy, and a hitchhiking ghost. While Mary's exact origin story is not known, legends abound. The most prominent says Mary's story began at the O. Henry Ballroom in the mid-1930s. The ballroom, now called the Willowbrook Ballroom, sits just off of Archer Avenue in Willow Springs. It was a popular place for swing and big band dancing and booked the best bands of the day. And because of its secluded nature and reputation for booze, prostitution, and gambling, young people from all over Chicago's South Side flocked there. Mary was at the O. Henry Ballroom with her boyfriend that fateful night. They spent the night dancing and drinking, but at some point, Seriously? their fun turned yeah, into an argument, and Mary stormed out, facing a cold walk home, alone. But as fate would have it, as she walked up Archer Avenue, alone, she was struck in a hit-and-run accident. As the driver fled, Mary was left to die. Her parents, grieving, buried her in Resurrection Cemetery in her favorite white party dress. And it wasn't long before motorists started picking up a beautiful young blonde woman dressed in white on Archer Avenue, only to have her vanish from their vehicles at the gates of Resurrection Cemetery. But is there any truth to this legend? Did Mary exist and die on Archer Avenue? Or is this nothing more than an urban legend, folklore, and just another of dozens of stories about vanishing hitchhiker spirits? This legend while very similar to many others, does however seem to stem from at least some truth and offers us evidence, multiple eyewitness accounts. The first encounters with Mary started in 1934, when numerous drivers reported that a girl tried to flag them down for rides on Archer Avenue, or attempted to jump onto the running boards of their vehicles as they passed by. Several people have had face-to-face -face encounters with Mary. One such encounter occurred in 1939, when Jerry Paulus reported spending almost an entire evening with the ghost. I was at the uh, Liberty Grove and Hall, which uh, is a dance hall, and I spied uh, this really attractive uh, blonde sitting in the corner. She must have sat there for a couple hours before I got the nerve to ask her to dance. She accepted and we spent the next several hours just dancing and talking. One thing that I noticed about her was that her skin was very cold. Icy really to the touch. As the evening concluded, I asked her if I could drive her home and she agreed, giving me an address on South Demon Avenue. As we left, she asked me if I could go the way of Arch Avenue, which was strange because it was really out of the way, but I didn't care. I just wanted to spend as much time with her as I could. As I uh, approached uh, Resurrection Cemetery, she asked me to pull over and let her out there. I was confused, but I did pull over, and I didn't understand why she wanted to get out at such a dark and odd location. There was a row of houses just off of Archer, and I assumed that she was going to go over there. I asked her if I could walk her home. 
she declined and turned in a seat facing me, and that's when she said, This is where I have to get out, and where I'm going, you cannot follow. I, did, I didn't understand, and before I could respond, she jumped out of the car and ran towards the gates of the Resurrection Cemetery. And right there, before my eyes, I swear to you, she vanished. The next day, Jerry decided to go to the address she had given him, but the woman who answered the door told him that he could not have possibly spent the evening with her daughter, as she had been dead for four years. Paulus was shown a picture by the woman and positively identified her as the woman he had spent the evening with. There are many such encounters with Mary, all ending the same way, with her suitor for the evening shocked and confused at the gates of Resurrection Cemetery. There were multiple Mary sightings in the 1930s, but the encounters seemed to die off until the 1970s when they picked up again. It was during this time that the cemetery was undergoing some renovations, renovations that may have caused Mary some unrest. Bob Main, the night manager at a nightclub named Harlow's, had two encounters with Mary in 1973. She appeared twice in the nightclub. He said that her expression seemed to look right through you and also described her appearance. She was about 24 to 30 years old, five foot eight or nine. Slender with yellow blonde hair to the shoulders as she wore in these big spooly curls coming down from the high forehead. She was really pale, like she powdered her whole face and body. She had on this old dress that was yellowed like a wedding dress left in the sun. She sat right next to the dance floor and wouldn't talk to anyone. She danced all by herself, this pirouette type dance. People were saying, who is this bizarre chick? The strangest thing was, even though we carded everyone who came in there, nobody, either night, ever saw her come in and they never saw her leave. When Maine and the other staff members tried to talk to the young woman to see if she was okay, the woman only shook her head. Another well-documented Mary encounter happened in 1979 to a cab driver that apparently came in contact with her near the intersection of Archer Avenue and Willow Springs Road. This story appeared in the Suburban Tribune and was told by the cabbie who identified himself as Ralph. It was a Thursday night, and I was lost. I dropped this big spender way the hell down in Palo Heights, or Hills, or someplace like that, and I was trying to make my way back to the tollway. I just turned onto Archer, down there where it's still a lonely road, especially at midnight. And there she was. She was standing there, with no coat on, at the entrance of this little shopping center. No coat. And it's one of those really cold ones, too. She didn't put her thumb out or nothing like that. She just looked at my cab. Of course, I stopped. I figured maybe she had car trouble or something. She hopped right in the front seat, and she had on this fancy kind of white dress, like she'd been to a wedding or something. And those new kind of disco-type shoes with the straps and that. She was a looker. A blonde. I mean, I didn't have any ideas like that. She was young enough to be my daughter, 21 tops. I asked her where she was going, and she said she had to get home. 
I asked her what was wrong, if she'd had car trouble or what, but she really didn't answer. She was fuzzy. Maybe she'd had a couple of drinks or something and was just tired. I don't know. Oh, the only thing she really did say was that the snow came early this year. Other than that, she just nodded when I asked and if we were supposed to just keep going departure. Mainly, she was just looking out the windows at the snow and the trees. It was obvious that her mind was a million miles away. Maybe she had smoked something, or was on drugs or something. Who knows? A couple of miles up Archer, and there she jumped with a start like a horse. I was like, here, here. I hit the brakes. I looked around and didn't see any kind of house. Where, I said. And then she sticks her arm out and points across the road to my left and says, there. And that's when it happened. I looked to my left at this little shack, and when I turned, she was gone just vanished and the door never opened may the good lord strike me dead it never opened there are literally dozens and dozens of stories just like these making resurrection mary the most seen ghost in the windy city even though sightings and encounters have slacked off in the recent years they still occur does mary exist if you ever find yourself along archer avenue late at night Perhaps you can ask her. Don't be surprised if you find yourself magically enchanted by a ghostly beauty called Resurrection Mary. All right, folks, we hope you've enjoyed our telling of the legend of Resurrection Mary. The uh, Prairie Land Paranormal Podcast is an exploration into all things paranormal with dramatic storytelling, historical research, relevant science, and witness accounts. If you are interested in hearing more of our podcast, you can find us online at www.prairielandparanormalpodcast.com or through your favorite podcast player. We hope to see you soon. Hi guys, this is Heather and Kristen, the hosts of Sinister Sweethearts Podcast. Follow along as we journey through the 50 states of America discussing everything weird, creepy, and sinister. New episodes every Tuesday, and you can find us on ParanormalityRadio.com or your favorite podcast player. Our first story is called Party in the Morgue. In the 90s, I worked as a security guard, and one of the businesses that contracted us was the local hospital. On top of the usual drunks, addicts, etc., we were also responsible for checking the guest list in the morgue. Every two hours, we were to go through the drawers and the meat locker and check each guest's toe tag against an inventory sheet to make sure everyone was always accounted for. I worked night shift there for almost two months and nothing weird happened, except for a call button that liked to go off in an empty room, but that could have been a mechanical problem. On what ended up being my last night there, I had a college interview in the morning, so had to get off work a half hour early. I always made my morgue check at the top of the hour, but because I was leaving early, I did my last check of the night a half hour early as well. Like most hospitals, the morgue was in the basement, and the acoustics down there were such that every sound echoed slightly. I got off the elevator and started down the long hall to the morgue, my footsteps echoing as I walked. I started hearing what sounded like people talking, which was nothing unusual in itself. Late night arrivals and attendants working late was commonplace, but this sounded different. The voices, especially the couple of laughs I heard, I still can hear the laughs, had a hollow kind of distant quality to them. 
and there was more than a few of them. I was officially creeped out. As I got 25, 30 feet from the morgue, I hear a man say, He's coming. And an old woman respond, He's early. I quickened my pace as I hear a hurried commotion and mumbled voices and gave a shout on my walkie for backup in the morgue. I bust into the morgue not knowing what to expect, and there's no one there. I look in all the rooms, under and behind all the furniture, nothing. Then I see it. Laying on the floor by the drawers is a toe tag. I start opening the drawers, expecting to catch someone hiding in some of them, and find no one but the guests. The third one I opened ended up being the owner of the orphan toe tag. Three other guards came down, and we did a full search of the whole floor. Found no one. What freaked me out, though, was I had been checking the bodies all night. Some had been here a couple days, and so I kind of knew what body was where. When I did my search of the drawers, almost half of them were in the wrong ones. I quit that day. Our next story is an excerpt from the book Ghost Stories of Michigan, written by Dan Asfar. The Red Dwarf. The first people to settle Detroit called him Le Nan Rouge, a grotesque little hobgoblin standing no more than two feet tall with glaring red eyes and warty crimson skin burning under a coarse blanket of thick black hair. If observers were not sure whether to be afraid or amused by the shambling little horror, they soon learned that the Red Dwarf was a faithful predecessor of Calamity. Without fail, disaster followed close behind any appearance of the hideous gnome. Almost every notable misfortune in Detroit, from the ruin of Antoine de la Mothe Cadillac in the 18th century to the devastating ice storm of 1976, fell soon after a sighting of this stumpy monstrosity. According to legend, the first European to encounter the Red Dwarf was Cadillac, the founder of Detroit City. The famous French explorer was sitting on the bank of the Detroit River sometime in the early 1700s, blithely watching the water flow by, when the Red Dwarf jumped down from one of the surrounding trees and landed right in front of the startled Frenchman. The dwarf was giggling uncontrollably as bubbling tendrils of drool dripped from the rancid leer on its face. Leaping from one foot to the next in a demented dance, it wielded a tree branch like a sword, coming at Cadillac with exaggerated lunges. Cadillac would have surely laughed at this clownish display of swordsmanship if the little creature were not so alarmingly repugnant. Drawing his sword and beating the brownie back and forth with the flat of his blade, Cadillac stared in wonder as the red dwarf turned and ran, its mad cackle trailing off as it disappeared into the woods. Soon after his encounter with the red dwarf, Cadillac's fortunes plummeted, and his schemes to make Detroit the Paris of New France failed. Arrogant and overly ambitious, he upset the interests of established traders in Montreal, angered the governor of New France, and made enemies of the Jesuits. Cadillac was recalled to France in 1710, losing his trade monopoly out of Detroit and all the privileges that went with it. The next time a sighting of the Red Dwarf was recorded, it was 1763, and the American colonies were in the throes of open warfare as the English, French, and their respective Indian allies fought for dominance of the continent. On July 30th of that year, the settlers spotted the Red Dwarf near the Detroit River, giggling to itself while doing cartwheels along the river's banks. About 24 hours later, one of Pontiac's war parties decimated a force at Perrins Creek, killing 60 men and their commanding officer at the Battle of Bloody Run. It was about 40 years later, late in the spring of 1805, when the Red Dwarf was seen again. 
Several people spotted the stunted fiend, hobbling through Detroit's back streets, cackling in deranged glee. All who saw the dwarf that day did their best to get as far away from the monster as they could, but just as before, disaster followed in the red dwarf's footsteps. On June 11th of that year, a fire started in the local baker's stable. Spreading to the surrounding buildings, the blaze was soon raging out of control. It ravaged the entire town before it ran its course, burning practically everything to the ground. Old General William Hall, the only officer in American history to be sentenced to death for military incompetence, claimed that he saw the Red Dwarf grinning at him from the fog on the fateful day in 1813 that he surrendered Detroit to the invading British Army. His fellow officers and the public at large were outraged by his cowardly capitulation, given that the garrison in Detroit outnumbered the British force. He was court-martialed under charges of cowardice and neglect of duty and condemned to death. Though he eventually received a presidential pardon from James Madison, he never outlived the humiliation of his court-martial. To the end of his days, poor Will Hall was haunted by the Red Dwarf's burning red eyes piercing through the thick fog drifting off Lake St. Clair. And there is reason to believe that the Red Dwarf yet lives. Just before Detroit police raided the United Community and Civic League in a legal after-hours bar late in July 1967, the Red Dwarf was said to have been dashing down 12th Street doing backflips and cartwheels as he ran. In a matter of hours, 12th Street would become the terrible epicenter of the week-long racial riots that erupted after the police raid. When the smoke cleared on July 30th, 43 people had been killed, 7,000 arrested, and property damage was estimated at about $22 million. The Detroit riots were the worst bout of urban violence that the United States experienced during the tumultuous 1960s. Two linemen were on their lunch break on March 1, 1976, when they saw what they thought was a child shimmying up a utility pole. Yelling at the mischievous creature to get down from its perch, they were horrified at the sight that greeted them when the little offender slid down. It wasn't a child. It wasn't even human. The Red Dwarf leered at the two city workers before dashing off, making remarkable time with its absurdly lopsided gait. Not a day later, Detroit was hit by the worst ice storm in its history— destroying power lines and leaving nearly 400,000 Detroit residents without electricity. Since that time, Detroit's inverted version of the Irish leprechaun has been reclusive. Though it has been claimed that people have spotted the truncated harbinger of doom before falling to personal tragedies, there have been no accounts since 1976 of the Red Dwarf preceding public disasters. For instance, there were no Red Dwarf sightings before the ice storm in 97, which did more damage than the storm in 1976. Has the ancient imp finally succumbed to age? Has somebody seized the agile dwarf and broken the adage that discourages one from shooting the messenger? Has Le Nan Rouge just up and left, deciding that Detroit has gotten too crowded for its liking? Or even yet, is it simply waiting for disaster of a scope deserving of its presence? Surely then, going by historical precedent, if the two-foot demon is still kicking around, it is best that no one is able to confirm it. Hello, everyone, and happy Halloween. This is Brandon from the Parity Podcast. Tonight, I wanted to read you a story that takes you on an adventure of love and a mysterious portal. Joining me on this read is our dear friend from the hit show Ghost Biker Explorations, the lovely Miranda Young. This story was written by Reddit user Veristal and is entitled No One Remembers Molly.
I still remember Molly. She had long curls of shining brown hair, green eyes with flecks of brown that sparkled like the surface of a clear summer pond, lips that curved up slightly even when she didn't feel like smiling, a scream so sharp that it tore the night apart and kept going right up until it buried itself in my heart. I remember her. I do. It won't take her away from me. I won't let it. I woke up with my head pressed against the metal frame of the window. When I pulled away, my sweaty skin left a greasy smear on the glass, making the passing world outside seem muddled and strange. I was on the school bus home as it followed the same route it has taken since junior high. There was another five minutes before it came back to the lumbering halt at the bottom of the hill where I lived. Not enough time to go back to sleep, so I might as well wake up before I... Wait, what's in my hand? It was a small piece of paper. Not notebook paper or typing paper, but that thicker, more expensive paper you tended to see like in journals or like limited edition books. Except this paper was purple. A dark lavender... That was the same shade as the lilies that had been on Molly's sister's coffin. She had died before I met Molly, but I felt like I knew her from all the stories I'd been told. Purple had been her favorite color, and so when she died, Molly had insisted that the funeral spray have purple lilies. She told me it was an Asiatic lily strain called Purple Dream, and when I looked uncertain, Molly had pulled out her little notebook leather-clad and careworn, and I already knew she was going to show me. According to Molly, the lavender pages in the notebook were just the same shade of purple as the lilies on the coffin. I didn't know what to say. As much as we'd talked about times when her sister was alive, we rarely discussed the time surrounding her death. After a few moments, I awkwardly offered that it was really neat that they both liked the same color so much. Molly had looked surprised. Oh, I don't. Not really. But it's a way of keeping her with me, of not forgetting her, of reminding myself what she liked. I don't want her just to be a memory, you know? Memories are such liars. I rubbed the folded piece of torn paper between my thumb and index finger for a moment, holding on to that moment when she told me how she kept her sister with her. Her so sweet, earnest, and wonderful, and me. Finally admitting to myself how much I loved her. I didn't tell her that day, or for weeks after that, but when I did, she just smiled and kissed me. But where was she? She was gone, and I wasn't sure where, was I? I did not know. I looked at the paper again, the rough-hewn skin of it suddenly no longer comforting. It was strange and alien. A black door in a meadow that shouldn't have never been opened. I wanted to throw it away, but a pain in my chest stopped me. No, I couldn't run from this. I had to remember again. I had to remember it, all of it. And maybe this was a note from Molly. Something she left me that could help me find her again. So I opened it, and I read the two words written there, my breath dying in my chest as I remembered again how I had heard her scream. Just two words written in her heavy, flowing hand, but they were enough to press me down through my seat, through the world, until I was nearly gone. Just a thin thread between what had been, what was, and what might be. 
two words. Starfield Black. I hadn't seen her since the past Friday, which was irregular for us, but I had to go out of town for a family reunion with my folks. And when I thought of begging off, Molly reminded me that in ten months, we'd be away together at college, and there'd be less chances to spend time with our families. A weekend here and there would do us both some good. We both knew she meant that more for me than herself. Her father was overseas, and her mother worked at a hospital most weekends, so the odds of her socializing with either of them seemed doubtful. But she was right. I needed to take the time while I had it. Me and Molly had our whole lives to be together. As soon as I saw her during the morning break that Monday, I knew something was wrong. She looked pale and nervous, and my first thought was that she was sick. Taking her hand, I gave it a squeeze. What's wrong? You don't look right. She gave me a small smile, a little of her normal twinkle coming to life in her eyes. You do charm me, Douglas. You're quite the silver-tongued devil. I was starting to smile at that when her eyes left mine again, as though the weight of holding her gaze was too much for her to bear. Pressing her lips into a thin line, she lowered her voice slightly. I, I'm all right, but I do need to talk to you. Can we go over? Now, going over for us meant going behind the lunchroom, where most of the high schoolers hung out during morning break. Usually there are a few kids back there, too, but it was a sparse enough that you had some privacy if you needed it. I could tell from looking at her that this was something she didn't want anyone else to hear. So we went over, and we'd barely rounded the corner before she turned back to me, her eyes wider and a bit wilder than before. I went to ask what was wrong, but then she was grabbing my arms and taking in a low, urgent tone that brooked no questions or arguments. At first, I couldn't decide if it was excitement or terror, but by the time she was done, I knew it was both. Doug, I went, I went walking out behind the house last night. Well, it wasn't night when I started, but it was heading that way. And I didn't plan on walking so long, but I was jittery and missing you. And I just had this feeling that, well, that I needed to go out. So I did. I walked down the trail behind the house, you know, the one that goes down by the river. And I got there, went over the kissing bridge, and I decided I'd go on to the edge of the stalwart farm. It was a good ways, but there was still light. And you know how fast I am. I figured I'd go and be back before the moon was even up. But time gets strange when night sets in. It was dark quicker than I'd figured, and by the time I reached the first field, I was beginning to regret my choice. Now I had to walk back in the dark and try not to twist my ankle or step on a snake. I was turning to do just that when something in the field caught my eye. Or not a something, but rather a nothing. The sky was turning more black than blue, but I could still see across the field some. Enough to see a patch of dark in the middle of that tall grass a bit of shadow that didn't belong. At first I thought it was the new shed or a small silo even. It had been a couple months since we last walked that far in that direction after all. But the more I looked, the more I saw that was wrong. It wasn't a building or a piece of equipment or, well, or anything that I could tell. It had no features or form, just a vertical slice of night like the rest of the world hadn't caught up to it yet. I should have left right then. I don't know why I didn't. Instead, I headed into the fallow grass, and I wasn't worried about it being late or snakes anymore. I just wanted to see it closer, make sense of it, 
I felt scared and happy all at once, and I had this strange idea that if I got closer, I could maybe narrow it down to just the happy. Getting closer didn't help much. It was bigger to me now, but it still had no discernible features other than the hazy edges where it ended and the field began. Well, that's not entirely true. As I got closer, I saw it was way taller than I thought. I don't know how I didn't see it from far off, but it stretched up all the way into the night sky, farther than I could see the end of it. That and, well, it seemed to vibrate a little. I could feel a hum coming off of it as I got closer, kind of like being close to a big power line. The hairs on my arms were standing on end, and I still thought about cutting and running, even at the end, but I didn't. Instead, I just kept going. The rest of the sky was dark now, and I was already seeing the first stars peeking out. I figured I still had another 20 yards or so to go before I reached the edge of the thing, though it was hard to say for sure. But then, my next step, well, it just disappeared. For a second, I thought it had just gone away, but then I looked around and realized that the darkness wasn't what had disappeared. The field had. Doug, I was standing in the middle of an orchard. It was still dark, but it was a different kind of dark. Pure black, but yet somehow I could still see. I saw the row of trees and beyond that rolling fields that stretched out of the base of a mountain. A mountain, Doug. Not the little hills like we have around here. It was the biggest thing I've ever seen. Jagged and curved like the tooth of some giant monster that was waiting underground. And on the mountain, way off in the distance, I could see tiny green lights. Someone lived up there, wherever there was, and I could sense from the sights and the sounds and the smells that things were living all around me. Just not things like I'd ever known. That's when it really hit me that I was someplace different. I looked up between the trees at that inky black sky, and there were no stars. Not the first one, but I did see a moon. It was funny looking, though. Not white and round like ours, but pinkish with a bluer top that stuck out, and... Doug, it wasn't a moon. It was two moons. The second one, the little blue one, it came on out after a minute from behind the big pink one. Seeing them, it made me so happy. It made me wish you were with me so much. That's when I realized I needed to try to leave again. Needed to come back and tell you about it if I could. So I went backwards back the way I'd come. And I tell you, my heart was pounding. I was afraid it wouldn't work and I'd be stuck. But I was also afraid it would work. And it might not let me back in once I found you. She was crying a little now, and I went to give her a hug, but she shook her head. No, I'm okay. I got back out, obviously, and even though I went straight home, it was almost midnight when I got there. I'd been in that place for hours, I guess. I wanted to call you or go get you right then and there, but I knew it seemed crazy. She looked up at me, her expression growing slightly hurt as she tried to smile. Though judging from how you're looking, I didn't do a much better job today than I would have last night. I returned her smile nervously. Baby, I don't think you're crazy. But I think maybe you had a real vivid dream or something last night. That's what it sounds like to me. Molly's face hardened slightly. I know a dream. That was no dream. I remember it clearly, and... Her eyes roved around as though she was searching for something. And I had a leaf. A leaf from one of those trees stuck in my hair this morning. I flushed it before I thought about it, but I swear it was there. I nodded, trying to keep my expression neutral. Okay, well, I understand. 
We should go back after school and see if it's still. She was already shaking her head. No, we can't. Don't you understand? It could go away. We have to go now. Step through while there's time. Frowning, I pulled away from her slightly. Molly, if there's something out there, we don't need to just go messing around with it. After pausing, I added, it could be dangerous. She snorted. You don't believe me anyway. I sighed. No, you're right, I don't. And it doesn't sound real. But I do trust you. More than anyone on this earth. And real or not, if you say it's there, then that's good enough for me. Her smile was brighter this time as she stepped forward to give me a hug. I felt as much as heard the next word as she muttered it into my chest. Okay then, let's go. The bus shuddered and squealed as it came to a stop at the bottom of my hill. Stepping off, I stuffed my hands in my jacket. The right one clutched tight around the message like it was a talisman. Maybe that's exactly what it was. I knew no one should be home, but I was still anxious as I crept inside my house and pulled the keys for the old pickup off the hook by the door. The thing barely ran and would break down in a stiff wind. But that was okay. It didn't need to get me far. Just past Molly's house to where the woods began, I could make my own way from there. I was anxious as she drove us across and out of town, partially because we'd never skipped school before, but mainly because I was worried about her. Something was wrong here, but I didn't know what yet. And whatever it was, it had my Molly tighten its grasp, so until I could see what was going on, I had to go along. And looking over at Molly, she caught my eye, giving me a smile. We're here. She had driven down the side road that ran along the stalwart property, and even as we got out of the car, I saw the dim shape of that thing in the field. My God, what is that? Molly beamed at me. I know, right? I told you it was real. She came around and grabbed my hand, pulling me forward towards the field. Come on, we need to go now. For a distance, I walked without resistance. My mind was trying to justify or reconcile what I was seeing. It was just as she had said, and even in the near midday sun, that patch of night stood out like a wound in the world. But as we got closer, I started feeling that hum on my skin, in my bones and my brain. It didn't hurt, but it didn't feel right either. And something in me turned at that, though I wasn't sure if I was feeling fear of danger or just the unknown. Either way, the result was the same. I pulled my hand from Molly's and stopped in my tracks. She slowed to a stop and looked back. What's wrong? It's fun, Doug. I've been in already. You know I wouldn't bring you here if I thought it was something bad. I stared at her for a moment and then passed her to the looming dark that wavered a few yards further on. How? How can you know that isn't bad? And how do you know that's where it goes isn't bad? Molly smiled and rolled her eyes at me. I told you, I was in there for hours, and nothing bothered me. It's a good place. A magic place. I could feel that. Her face grew more serious. And we can be happy here. Really happy. I could feel that, too. I rubbed my face with a clammy palm before meeting her gaze again. (laughs) And what if you're wrong? What if it closes and we're trapped there? She frowned slightly. Then we'd be trapped there together. 
Waving her hands, she turned back towards the darkness. It's better if I just show you. I'll go in first, and then you. Suddenly, she was gone. Molly! I ran closer, but there was no sign of her. Just unrelenting darkness and the static buzz that thing was putting off. Molly! Can you hear me? I waited, at first hearing nothing, but then faintly. Doug, I can hear you. Come on in. It's like it was before. It's a wonderful place here. Please come in. I felt my feet going numb. Ah, I'm scared, Molly. Just, just come back out, okay? Several moments passed, and then... Doug, I can't. It's not letting me back out this time. I... Maybe it's getting ready to close, but maybe you can still get in. Please, baby, come in now before it's too late. My mind was filled with reasons not to, but none of them mattered. I had to go to her. Be with her. Help her if I could. Maybe it was really was a wonderful place. Or if not, maybe we could find a way back out, too. As I reached my hand out, I felt a force slam through my body sending me cascading backwards for what seemed like forever. I remember landing in the dirt and the weeds and wondering why it was nighttime already, wondering where Molly was and why she was screaming my name. I needed to find her. I needed to tell her I was all right, that everything was okay, and... That movie was dumb. I looked down at Molly as we walked out of the theater and grinned. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it kind of was. But it still was pretty good. She rolled her eyes. You like dumb movies. It's shameful, but true. Snickering, she went on. But I mean, that couple was supposed to be spies, right? I nodded. Yep. International spies, which are always the fanciest. She returned my nod. Right. And yet when he's trapped in that meat-curing shed or whatever, hanging by his feet, and she comes in acting like she's with the bad guys so she can rescue him, what does he do? He eats his poisoned tooth because he's heartbroken. She's betrayed him or whatever, which she didn't. But they were too dumb to figure that out. I shrugged as we reached the car. I mean, yeah, but that's the point, right? It's like Romeo and Juliet. It's tragic because it's all a big misunderstanding. They were supposed to be together, but things got in the way. Molly poked me in my chest. Exactly. Romeo and Juliet is dumb, too. Stupid people making rash decisions rather than or making a plan. (laughs) Laughing, I poked her back in the stomach. Yeah, well, we just watched wasn't exactly Shakespeare. But I don't know. I think people do dumb stuff in the heat of the moment. She nodded, her eyes narrowing slightly. They do, but we don't. I raised an eyebrow at her. We don't? Nope, because if either one of us is either kidnapped or trapped or being tortured by a secret cabal of spies, and the other one comes to rescue them, we're going to have code phrases to let each other know what's up. You know, I'm on your side. It's time to go. That kind of thing. I snorted a little. (laughs) You are special. Like, gifted, but not really gifted special. (laughs) Molly glared at me. Mock me if you will, but this might save our lives one day. My code phrase will be lemon muskrat. So if you're ever coming to get me out of a bad spot, just tell me that so I know everything will be okay. I turned to get in the car. Okay, Agent Lemon Muskrat. Wait. Stopping, 
I looked across at the roof of the car at her questioningly. What's yours? My passcode thingy? She rolled her eyes. Yes, this is serious business. We both need one for it to work well. Smirking, I rubbed my chin. Hmm. Let me think about this. How about Spacefield Black? Molly let out a groan. <sighs> Seriously? You're still butthurt we didn't go see that sci-fi thing? I grinned. No, it's wholly unrelated. Though it probably would have been better than that dumb crap we just watched. Sighing, she nodded. Probably, yeah. Okay, you're stuck with it now. When I come to rescue you, remember that you picked a dumb space movie for your cool spy password. Laughing, I opened up the door. <laughs> yeah, when it comes up, I'll be sure to remember. When I woke up in the field the next morning, the doorway to night was gone. Molly wasn't there either. I found her car where she had left it, but there was no sign of her. Then I called her mother, hoping that she'd found a way home somehow. Molly's mother didn't know what I was talking about. I don't mean that she didn't know Molly was missing. I mean she didn't know Molly at all. That she that she was her daughter, or that she even existed. We had a frustrating and terrifying phone call that morning, followed by a longer, more heated conversation in person that afternoon, and she swore that she only had one daughter, Susan, and that Susan had died ten years ago. It was the same with everyone. People at school, her friends, my friends, my own parents, no one remembered her. It was as though when she stepped through that doorway, she'd completely erased from every place in the world, except for me. I still remember Molly. Six months have passed, and every day I find it harder to picture her face or hear her voice. Every time I wake, I make myself recount every detail I can remember. Hold on to every memory, even if they're becoming memories of memories of memories. Even though it's like I'm grasping at sand, and every time I reach, I can tell there's less in my grip. And I've been terrified of the day that I'll put up my hand and there's nothing left. But then today, that note came. It's impossible that she could have gotten me that note. It's impossible. But then again, I sit writing this in a field, two miles behind her old house, staring up at the black gateway that waits patiently for me to finish. I'm not afraid of it closing too soon. She says this time it's for me, and it will wait for me to be ready. That she can't come back out without us losing that world for good, but that she's prepared a place for us there. A place where we will be safe and happy and together. I don't trust this thing or the strange world that lies beyond it. I don't understand how it works or how it has the power to wipe Molly's memory from the world. And I write this account knowing that it will likely never be read. For all I know, it might crumble away as soon as I pass over. But I'm okay with that. Things aren't worth less because they don't last forever. And they don't cease to be just because no one remembers them. The moments and the thoughts and the feelings and the life that fill all of them they always matter, even when we can't see them anymore. And the thing that matters the most, well, they, they never truly end. 
and there's always a way to find our way back to them. Now, I found mine. Hello, everyone. This is Brandon, the host of the Parunity Podcast, wanting to take a second to tell you about our show. The Parunity Podcast is your top choice for closing the distance between the paranormal groups. From ghosts to cryptids to ufology, we will discuss it all. The Parunity Podcast is aimed at promoting positivity and collaboration between investigators and is geared specifically for those in the field. But if you're not, you'll still get a kick out of the show as well, because you'll be able to think of it like ghost hunters talking shop. Tune in and join myself and all of our amazing guests as we entertain you with sensational stories of fantastic places, events, tips for your investigations, and so much more. And remember, you can find the Parunity Podcast on your favorite podcast directory and part of the Paranormality Radio Network. Hi guys, I'm Tanner Davidson, the host of the Monster Legend Podcast. The story I'm sharing with you today is Dagon by H.P. Lovecraft. I hope you enjoy it. I am writing this under an appreciable mental strain, since by tonight I shall be no more. Painless, and at the end of my supply of the drug alone makes life endurable, I can bear torture no longer, and shall cast myself from this garret window into the squalid street below. Do not think for my slavery to morphine that I am a weakling or a degenerate. When you have read these hastily scrawled pages, you may guess, though never fully realize why is it I must have gratefulness or death. It was in one of the most open and least frequented parts of the broad Pacific, the packet of which I was supercargo fell a victim to the German sea raider. The Great War was then at its very beginning, and the ocean forces of the Hun had not completely sunk to their later degradation. So our vessels made a legitimate prize. Whilst we were of our crew were treated with all the fairness and consideration due us as naval prisoners, so liberal indeed was the discipline of our captors that five days after we were taken, I managed to escape alone in a small boat with water and provisions for a good length of time. When I finally found myself adrift and free, I had but little idea of my surroundings. Never a competent navigator, I could only guess vaguely by the sun and stars that was somewhat south of the equator. Of the longitude I knew nothing, and no island or coastline was in sight. The weather kept fair, and for uncounted days, I drifted aimlessly beneath the scorching sun, waiting either for some passing ship or to be cast on the shores of some habitable land. But neither ship nor land appeared, 
and I began to despair in my solitude upon the heaving vastness of unbroken blue. The change happened whilst I slept. Its details I shall never know, for my slumber, though troubled and dream-infested, was continuous. When at last I awakened, it was discovered myself half sunk into a slimy expanse of hellish black mire, which extended about me in monotonous mutilations as far as I could see, and which my boat lay grounded some distance away. Though one might well imagine that my first sensation would be of wonder at so prodigious and unexpected a transformation of scenery, I was in reality more horrified than astonished, for there was in the air and in the rotting soil a sinister quality which chilled me to the very core. The region was putrid with the carcasses of decaying fish and of other less describable things which I saw protruding from the nasty mud of the unending plain. Perhaps I should not hope to convey in mere words the unutterable hiddenness that can dwell in absolute silence and barren immensity. There was nothing within hearing and nothing in sight save a vast reach of black slime. Yet the very completeness of the stillness and the homogeneity of the landscape oppressed me with a nauseating fear. The sun was blazing down from a sky which seemed to be almost black in its cloudless cruelty, as though reflecting the inky marsh beneath my feet. As I crawled into the stranded boat, I realized that only one theory could explain my position. Through some unprecedented volcanic upheaval, a portion of the ocean floor must have been thrown to the surface, exposing regions which for innumerable millions of years had laid hidden under the unfathomable watery depths. So great was the extent of the new land which had risen beneath my feet that I could not detect the fate and sounds of the surging ocean straining my ears as I might, nor were there any sea fowl to prey upon the dead things. For several hours I sat thinking or brooding in the boat which lay upon its side and afforded a slight shade as the sun moved across the heavens. As the day progressed, the ground lost some of its stickiness and seemed likely to dry sufficiently for traveling purposes in a short time. That night, I slept but little, and next day, I made for myself a pack containing food and water preparatory to an overland journey in search of the vanished sea and possible rescue. On the third morning, I found the soil dry enough to walk upon with ease. The odor of the fish was maddening, but I was too much concerned with graver things to mind so slight and evil and set out boldly.
solely for unknown goal. All day, I forged steadily westward, guided by a faraway hummock, which rose higher than any other elevation on the rolling desert. That night, I encamped on, on the following day, still traveled toward the hummock, though that object seemed scarcely nearer than when I had first espied it. By the fourth evening, I attained the base of the mound, which turned out to be much higher than it had appeared from a distance, in an intervening valley, setting out in sharper relief from the general surface. Too wary to ascend, I slept in the shadow of the hill. I know not why my dreams were so wild that night, but ere the waning and fantastically gibbous moon had risen far above the eastern plain, I was awake in a cold perspiration, determined to sleep no more. Such visions as I had experienced were too much for me to endure again, and in the glow of the moon, I saw how unwise I had been to travel by day. Without the glare of the parching sun, my journey would have cost me less energy. Indeed, I now felt quite able to perform the ascent which had deterred me at sunset. Picking up my pack, I started for the crest of the eminence. I have said that the unbroken monotony of the rolling plain was a source of vague horror to me, but I think my horror was greater when I gained the summit of the mound and looked down the other side to an immeasurable pit or canyon whose black recesses the moon had not yet soared high enough to illumine. I felt myself on the edge of the world peering over the rim into a fathomless chaos of eternal night. Though my terror ran curiously, reminiscent of paradise lost and of Satan's hideous climb through the unfashioned realms of darkness. As the moon climbed higher in the sky, I began to see that the slopes of the valleys were not quite so perpendicular as I had imagined. Ledges and outcroppings of rock afforded fairly easy footholds for a descent, whilst after a drop of a few hundred feet, the clivity became very gradual. Urged on by impulse which I cannot definitely analyze, I scrambled with difficulty down the rocks and stood on a gentler slope beneath, gazing into the Stygian deeps where no light had yet penetrated. All at once, my attention was captured by a vast and singular object on the opposite slope, which rose steeply about a hundred yards ahead of me, an object that gleamed whitely in the newly bestowed rays of the ascending moon. That it was merely a gigantic piece of stone, I soon assured myself. But I was conscious of a distinct impressions that its contours and positions were not together the work of nature. A closer scrutiny filled me with sensations I cannot express. For despite its enormous magnitude, 
its position in an abyss which had yawned at in the bottom of the sea since the world was young, I perceived beyond a doubt that the strange object of the well-shaped monolith, whose massive bulk had known the workmanship, perhaps the worship of living and thinking creatures. Dazed and frightened, yet not without a certain thrill of a scientist or archaeologist's delight, I examined my surroundings more closely. The moon, now near the zenith, shone weirdly and vividly above the towering steeps that hemmed in the chasm, and revealed the fact that a far-flung body of water flowed at the bottom, lying out of sight in both directions, and almost lapping my feet as I stood on a slope. Across the chasm, the wavelets washed the base of the Cyclopean monolith, on whose surface I can now trace both inscriptions and crude sculptures. The writing was in a system of hieroglyphics unknown to me and unlike anything I had ever seen in books, consisting for the most part of conventionalized aquatic symbols such as fishes, eels, octopi, cretaceans, mollusks, whales, and the like. Several characters obviously represented marine things which are unknown to the modern world, but whose decomposing forms I had observed on ocean risen plain. It was the carving, however, that did most to hold me spellbound. Plainly invisible across the intervening water on account of their enormous size or an array of bass release whose subjects would excite that envy of a door. I think that these things were supposed to pick men, at least a certain sort of men, though the creatures were soon disporting like fishes in the waters of some marine grotto, or paying homage at some monolithic shrine which appeared to be under the waves as well. Other faces and forms I dare not speak in detail, for the mere reverence makes me grow faint grotesque beyond the imaginations of a Poe or a Beller. They were damnably human in general outline, despite webbed hands and feet. Shockingly wide and flabby lips, glassy, bulging eyes, and other features less pleasant to recall. Curiously enough, they seem to have been Chances badly out of proportion with their scenic background, for one of the creatures was shown in the act of killing a whale, represented as but little larger than himself. I remarked, as I say, there are some primitive fishing or some seafaring tribe, some tribe whose last descendants had perished heirs before the first ancestors of the built town an earthangel man was born. Awestruck at its unexpected glimpse to a bass beyond the conception of the most daring anthropologist, I stood musing whilst the moon cast queer reflections on a silent channel before me. Then, suddenly, I saw it, with only a slight turning to mark its rise to the surface. The thing slid into view above the dark waters, vast, polyphemous-like and loathsome, 
It darted like a stupendous monster of nightmares to the monolith, about which it flung its gigantic scaly arms. The while it bowed its hideous head and gave vent to uncertain measured sounds, I think I went mad then. Of my frantic ascent of the slope and cliff, and of my delirious journey back to the stranded boat, I remembered little. I believe I sang a great deal, and laughed oddly when I was unable to sing. I have indistinct recollections of a great storm some time after I reached the boat. At any rate, I know that I had heard pearls of thunder and other tones which nature utters only in her wildest moods. When I came out of the shadows, I was in San Francisco Hospital, brought thither by the captain of the American ship which had picked up my boat in mid-ocean. In my delirium, I had said much, but found that my words had been given scant attention. Of any land upheaval in the Pacific, my rescuers knew nothing, nor did I deem it necessary to insist upon a thing which I knew they could not believe. Once, I sought out only a solitary anthologist and amused them with the peculiar questions regarding the ancient Philistine legend of Dagon, the fish god. But soon, perceiving that he was hopelessly conventional, I did not press my inquiries. It is at night, especially when the moon is gibbous and waning, that I see the thing. I tried morphine, but the drug has given only transient surcease and has drawn me into his clutches as a hopeless slave. So now I am to end it all having written a full account for the information on the contemptuous amusement of my fellow men. Often I ask myself if it could not have all been a pure phantasm, a mere freak of fever as I lay sun-stricken and raving in the open boat after my escape from the German man of war. This I ask myself, but ever does this come before me a hideously vivid vision and reply. I cannot think of the deep sea without shuddering at the nameless things that may at this very moment be crawling and floundering on its slimy bed, worshipping their ancient stone idols and carving their own detestable likenesses on submarine obelisks of water-soaking granite. I dream of a day when they may rise above the pillows to drag down in their reeking talons the remnants of a puny war exhausted mankind of a day when a land shall sink and a dark ocean floor shall ascend amidst universal pandemonium the end is near I hear a noise at the door as of some immense slippery body lubbering against it it shall not find me god that hand the window the window okay guys that was dagon by hp lovecraft it's a true classic and i hope you enjoyed it if you'd like to check out my podcast the monster legend podcast you can find us on apple spotify and wherever you listen to podcasts Happy Halloween.
Hi, I'm Marianne, host of the Walk in the Shadowlands podcast, and here is one of my personal encounters with the paranormal that I experienced earlier in my nursing career, and I shared it on the first season of my podcast in episode 5, Things That Go Bump in the Night. I was 24 or 25 at the time and I worked for a private Catholic hospital in Auckland, New Zealand. This particular hospital was over a 100 years old. My shift of preference was the night shift from 11pm to 7am as I didn't have to deal with all the political crap that goes on in hospitals and I could just do my work unhindered. This hospital was run by nuns of the Mercy Order that originated in Ireland. These nuns kept a close eye on how the wards were run and operated, and it was not uncommon to see them in their habits checking on how things were going any time of the day or night. They were extremely strict, but did care about their patients. Originally, the hospital had been a free hospital, but at some stage it became private and catered to those who could afford to use their services, which actually in New Zealand isn't too much of an issue because we have a free public health system here where I did my training and worked for most of my nursing career. Anyway, on that ward that I was working on at that time, I was sole charge at night with a supervisor who'd pop in when I needed her to check on medications for patients or to help if I needed it. So I really saw anyone during the night apart, as I mentioned before, the supervisor or the odd nun who would pop in really to make sure everything was okay. This one night, about 3am, I was in the sluice room emptying a bedpan one of the patients had just finished with. Now, the sluice sink is only a few feet from the door and as I stand there facing the sink, the door is to my left-hand side. Obviously, due to the noise that is made in sluice rooms, I always make sure that the door to the sluice room was firmly shut before I started to do any work in there so as to cause the least disturbance to my patients trying to sleep. So I was standing at the sink rinsing the metal bedpan before putting it into the steriliser when out of the corner of my eye I suddenly saw a tall nun standing in front of the sluice room door. She was tall thin, wearing an old-fashioned habit, you know, all black, to the floor, from her head to toe in black, except for the white bit around her face. I, I don't know what the name of that is called, but the white bit that goes around the face and under the chin. She was um, standing there wearing this old-fashioned habit, all black, apart from what I said, the white bit around her face. She had her hands clasped in front of her, And I got the sense of slight disapproval from her. I thought, oh my goodness, what have I done wrong? And she looked to be in her 40s perhaps. All this from out of the corner of my eye. And in a few seconds, my thought was, perhaps I was being a bit noisier than I thought I was. And I thought I was in trouble and she was about to let me have it. I admit, I did jump because I didn't hear her enter, but I put it down to concentrating on what I was doing. After all, I didn't want to spill any of the contents of the bedpan on me. So a couple of seconds after I became aware of her, when I had finished what I was doing, I turned to face her. To my utter shock, there was no one standing there. The door was still firmly closed and no way 
Could she have left the room without the door being opened? I admit, I stood there for a couple of minutes so that my heart rate could slow down and my breathing could return to normal and I didn't feel the need to pee any longer. (laughs) I put it down to one of the old nuns who'd passed, just checking up on the staff to make sure they were doing their job properly. I couldn't actually ask any of the staff if they had seen anyone before in that area of the hospital as it really wasn't the sort of place where talking about ghosts was really accepted. And I was only young and didn't have the self-confidence I have these days. So that was one of my nursing ghost stories. Hey everyone, I'm Jack Kirby. I'm the host of Paranormal Podcasts We Listen To, which is a roundtable podcast where I talk to your favorite hosts in the paranormal world. I also host The Matrix Has You, a podcast where I share your experiences with glitches in the Matrix, parallel realities, and the Mandela Effect. You can find Paranormal Podcasts We Listen To and The Matrix Has You on the Paranormality Podcast Network, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. On this episode, I'm going to be sharing a story from The Matrix. This story is by Reddit user Ophail. I had a subjectively long-involved dream where I was a vendor in a fish market. I remember getting up early, dressing, doing the whole morning routine, going to get tea, heading out to the docks, buying fish, loading up the cart to go get ice, then haggling for ice, buying some less fresh fish, then going to the market to set up my stall, setting up my stall, and selling fish all day. It was so real. I talked to my friends, smoked nasty cigarettes, haggled customers, ate lunch, had tea, and just lived through the day. At the end of the day, I cleaned up, counted my cash, paid the stall rent, went home, cooked some fish I hadn't sold, slung in with some veggies and some rice that I traded for. I drank some more tea, relaxed for a while, drew a hot bath, soaked and smoked some more nasty cigarettes, and then went to bed. The next morning, I woke up refreshed and ready to go down to the docks. Except, I was in my house, next to my wife. Truck parked outside. It was Saturday, so no work. My wife and I were getting geared up to go skiing in Oregon, and the car was already packed. Weird thing was, in the dream, I was single. A smoker, which I'm absolutely not and the whole long dream had been in fluent Chinese. The effortless kind. The only way you can get it is from speaking a lifetime of it. Oh, and I'd also been Chinese. I'm a big, hairy, white dude. 
somewhat fluent in Spanish. I know a little Russian, but I've never, it was weird. I have never worked in a fish market. I wonder who I was, or if this was a glitch, or if I was in a parallel reality. So what do you think? Was it a dream, or did he really live a day as a Chinese man working in a fish market? I hope you enjoyed this Glitch in the Matrix story, and Happy Halloween, everyone. Hello, I'm Lindsay. Hi, I'm Rebecca. And you're listening to I Have a Strange Story podcast. This is the podcast where two sisters retell your strange and paranormal stories and experiences. Thank you for joining us today for this special Halloween episode. Today, I bring you a story of fiction. This is Why Did You Have to See Me by Christina Martin. You just had to notice me. It had to be me? I don't know what brought me to your attention. I don't stand out from the crowd or wear flashy clothes that scream, pay attention to me. I want to be seen. I'm quite basic, as people my age would say. I like to blend in with the environment since I don't like much contact, especially with strangers. But you, you had to see me. I don't know how long you were following me before I noticed you, but when I finally paid enough attention, I saw you everywhere. I couldn't step outside my apartment without seeing you across the street with your camera. Snapping photos of me, or when I would turn down an aisle at the grocery store, you were there, staring at me as I was looking at my cereal. At first I thought it was all a coincidence. Honestly, I thought, who the fuck would follow me? I'm nothing special. I spend most of my time in my apartment or sometimes visiting friends. I thought for a while, maybe you had a crush on me? And was too embarrassed to say it, but when you started taking the photos... That's when I thought this was something more. So when I confronted you, you ran. I didn't see you for a week and was a bit conflicted with my feelings. I felt somewhat abandoned, but then at times content to have my privacy back. I bet you wished you'd never see me now. You thought you could stalk me, that I was just a helpless, lonely girl. Oh boy, how wrong were you? As I'm typing this, I can hear your screams echoing off my walls. No one will hear you. I promise. You're in my world now. No one probably even cares you're gone. I checked. You have no family to speak of, as you disowned them when you were a teenager. You have a girlfriend that was on the brink of breaking up with you because she thought you were going crazy with your constant chatter about me being some psycho with all the photos you took of me. Just being an ordinary woman going about her boring life. You developed my pictures from the dark room in your two-bedroom apartment and spread the photos all over the living room floor, screaming and begging for her to see what you saw. But she never did see, did she? Needless to say, I've done my research on you, friend. Thing is, I've spent so much time being unnoticed that I've gotten away with so much. The missing person posters riddled on the telephone poles or college cork boards. I'd have to say most of those are my victims. But you? I don't think your face will be in a milk carton or any newspaper. I cover my tracks. I've already gone to the police and filed a complaint about you stalking me. 
I went there, crying, mascara bleeding down my cheeks, terror in my eyes with my close friend embracing me as I shivered in her arms. You remember the police officer banging on your door to serve you the restraining order, right? Remember when he saw all the photos? Yeah, I know you tried to show what little evidence you had on me, saying I was a serial killer, but you really just looked like an unstable failed photographer to him. Now that I think of it, I remember when I first saw you see me. I had just lit the throat of some asshole that tried to attack me when I was walking home from a friend's house. I had just finished carving his neck and let go a hold of his hair. When he dropped to the ground, the only sound was him gurgling his last breath of air. You ran, but I thought you didn't get a good look at me since it was so dark that night. I honestly wouldn't have gone for you since you're not my typical victim, but Emma's changed. I'm adapting. Don't worry, though. You won't die as quickly as most of my victims. I want you to understand how being in the wrong place at the wrong time can become your worst nightmare. Noticing the unnoticeable has consequences. If you'd like to hear more stories from Christina Martin, visit her Patreon page at Sunday morning. Now I have a story to read. Uh, This is from a listener who sent it in. And this is a true story. And it's pretty creepy. I'll tell you that much. So this is from whenever he's younger. He's like in his 20s, he thinks. And he came out from a night of drinking and it's about 2 a.m. Um, so he pulled up and he sees that his neighbors are having a party next door and it looked like it was kind of winding down. Like there weren't a lot of people there. Um, but there were three girls there. Um, I think two of them lived there and one of them was like a friend who was there. And like, she like just looked like really messed up. Like she'd been drinking all night. She had no energy. Um, and they basically were like, Hey, can you help us with this girl? They were like, she's, you know, we needed to carry her to the bedroom. Like, can you help us? And he was like, sure. So he went over there, he picked up the girl and he took her into the bedroom. Um, and then he just sat on the floor next to her. Uh, he was scared that she was going to throw up and that she might choke. So eventually the two girls left out of the room and they went into the living room. Um, and he says that all of a sudden, whenever they left, they felt, he felt all of this energy like in the house and the girl who was laying in the bed started talking about the devil and she looked disturbed and she looked angry and she looked concerned and he couldn't really understand what was going on. He didn't even know this girl. Like he just showed up to help and those other people had just left. Um, so then she kept staring down the hallway and as she was staring down the hallway, she was saying he's down there and she just kept repeating it over and over. And at first he thought it was just a joke he thought they were just doing all this to scare him. Like it was some elaborate prank. Um, so then she escalated to screaming. Um, and she was screaming, he's down there. He's down there. By this time, two other guys show up and they're all friends. Um, and then he says that this is the point where he thinks that she started to act possessed. She was angry. She was slamming things. She was yelling. And he said that they couldn't even make sense of what she was yelling Um, or what was going on or what she was upset about. So he was previously religious at this time. He's not religious any longer, but at the time he really was. And he was like, holy shit, this is the scariest thing he's ever encountered in his life. Um, 
Okay. So he noticed what he thought, uh, was a need for help. Basically. He thought that this was his calling to really help her. Um, so she started like thrashing and throwing her body around the living room at this point. And everybody, uh, got really scared. He grabbed her by her shoulders and he, he put her up against the wall to keep her from thrashing her body around. Um, and he looked at her and at this point, those other people who were there, her friends, they all ran and they left and they left her alone in the living room with her. And he looked at her and he said, we have to pray for you. And he just started praying. Um, he doesn't remember what he prayed. Like he doesn't know if it was a specific prayer or if it was specifically to help this person. Um, and she looked at him and he asked her if she believed in God and she just started laughing and didn't, um, really provide the response. He said it was a very maniacal laugh that was absolutely terrifying. And he wanted to leave the room immediately. So he just started praying out loud over her. Um, and he was asking somebody, he was just saying, leave her alone, leave her alone. And then praying, um, she started yelling at her and she just started yelling the F word at you, like F you, F you. Um, so he went outside and he sees that there's crosses or not outside in the living room. He sees that there's crosses all over the living room. Um, and he said that he thought that these were idols at the time. And I had to ask him what that meant. <laughs> he basically meant, it's, um, worshiping an object over Jesus, over a person. And so some, some religions view religious stuff like that as, um, idols. And so he kind of saw it as a bad thing because you're supposed to worship Jesus over the cross. So what he did is he was like, I have to get her out of the living room. So we picked her up and he put her on the front porch. He looked at the girl who was his neighbor and he said, go get my brother. And so she ran next door. She went and got him. He came running back and he said he and his brother came and they just looked at each other and he said they knew exactly what they had to do. And his brother came over to him and then she started laughing in a very evil, very scary laugh. And then all of a sudden they heard dogs howling throughout the entire neighborhood, including his dog. And they also lived out in the country. So the houses were kind of like far apart all the dogs started howling and he and his brother just started praying out loud over her. Um, and he doesn't know how long it seems like it was forever, but eventually she just stopped and she just laid there. Um, he's not sure what happened. Um, in this moment, he went back home and his stepdad was there and his stepdad was very involved at the church that they went to. And he asked him like what it was. And his stepdad went on to tell him that he was very lucky to have this occurrence because he said that they didn't do anything to protect themselves and that with them praying over this person's body, if there was something that had possessed her when it left, it may have entered one of them. And so he was saying that they were actually very lucky that they had this experience, which is probably one of the scariest experiences. Um, his thoughts on it now is he thought that it could have been drugs. It could have been alcohol. It could have been intention sinking. Um, he's not sure, he never saw her again after that. And in fact, what he understands is that she allegedly went missing after this incident and they, they never heard from her or saw from her and they never talked to the neighbors again. So that's my story and I'm sticking to it. Happy Halloween. Thank you for listening. You can find us everywhere that you listen to your favorite podcasts.
Our story begins at 45 Lampkin Lane in the small town of Haddonfield, Illinois in 1963. A young boy at the age of six is haunted by dreams of ancient places, places that he has never seen or even heard of, yet of which he is intimately familiar. The protagonist of these visions is a disfigured Celtic boy named Enda, who lived in Northern Ireland during the dawn of the Celtic Age. Enda had an uncontrollable twitch and a shriveled arm due to the negligence of the midwives during his birth. He was treated poorly throughout his youth, not only by his family, but also by his entire village. The plight of Enda and of our young six-year-old boy from Haddonfield is a burning desire for a druid princess named Deirdre. The king, Deirdre's father, had announced that his daughter would be eligible for marriage. Enda requested an audience with the king and asked for his daughter's hand. The king was cruel in his response and mocked Enda severely, as did his father and his brothers. They taunted him, saying that the princess would sooner marry one of their goats than marry him. Time passed and Deirdre was betrothed to a gallant warrior named Colain. Though Enda's adoration was unrequited, as Deirdre had never even met the boy, he truly believed that if he were only able to speak with the princess, to show her the real Enda, that she would fall in love with him. He began to watch her from afar, making note of her comings and goings. One day he saw that she was alone collecting water at the river. So overwhelmed with emotion he was as he approached her, Enda in his haste caused Deirdre to be frightened and she lost her balance and began to fall into the river. Enda grabbed her and pulled her to safety, but the princess misconstrued his deed as an attack and thought that he meant her harm. She pulled away from his grasp and ran. Soon the whole village was aware of his encounter with the princess and he was even more of an outcast than ever before. Enda was so distraught, so ashamed, and so angry that his adoration soon turned to obsession and that to passionate and violent rage. On the eve of Samhain, the Gaelic festival that celebrates the end of harvest and the beginning of winter, or the darker half of the year, Enda attacked Deirdre and Colain, brutally murdering them. All his anger, all his hurt, all his rage was released in the strokes of his blade. It was not long into the night's festivities that the townsfolk discovered the grisly scene. A blood-soaked Enda clutching the mutilated corpse of the princess Deirdre. The people of the village fell on Enda and ripped his flesh from his bones. With their bare hands they released all of the hatred and anger and resentment that they had ever felt for the disfigured young Celt, leaving nothing but his head and his heart to be buried. Before Enda's remains were buried, the king had his shaman, a druid of the thorn, curse Enda's soul to wander for all eternity, repeating over and over his vicious acts. These dreams have not only haunted our young Haddonfield boy, but also his great-grandfather, who is taken by the same visions and shot to death two people at a Halloween harvest dance in 1899. He was hung for his crimes, but not before speaking his victims' names and saying that he knew them from a dream. Now this very same Halloween night, 1963, Enda will rise again. The dreaming boy will wake. He will act. He will kill. 
That boy's name is Michael Myers. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to a very special Halloween episode of the Great American Urban Legend Podcast. We are so thrilled to be sharing Halloween night with you. A super huge thank you to Prairie Paranormal Podcast for asking us to be part of their Halloween Horror Story Spooktacular podcast. Make sure you check them out and this massive collection of spooky tales at Prairie Para Podcast to hear us and a ton of other awesome podcasts sharing some terrifying tales. Remember, we're on all the social medias, but we mainly focus on Instagram and our website, so go follow us there. We are super engaged with the community and love meeting with you all and getting to know you better. Our link tree is in the bio of our Instagram page, and it has any and every T-Gulp link, so maybe go bookmark that too. Also, as soon as you're done listening to this or to Prairie Paranormal Podcast Special, get over to our YouTube channel and check out the premiere of our new series, Panda Plays, Get Good or Get Dead. It is a hilarious and frightening look at what happens when you take a girl like me who has no experience with video games and is terrified of anything horror-themed and put me in front of some of the spookiest video games ever made. I will have to learn how to play while trying to survive. Will I get good or get dead? Let's find out together. The link to our YouTube channel is in our link tree, and we are brand new at the YouTube thing, so if you could like, follow, subscribe, Share with your friends. It's just a couple of clicks on your end, but it is huge for us on our end. We love you all and love making content for you, and we'd love to get out there to a bigger audience. Thank you for all your support. And thank you for taking all the boring stuff. No problem. Now, back to the story. I am super excited about this one because out of all the boogeymen, I mean, it's probably tied between Michael and Jason. But those two are my top favorites. I don't think anybody else really holds a candle to them. So I'm super excited about this Michael Myers exploration. Just a hint, guys. My other favorite is Jason Voorhees. And his legend was birthed on Friday the 13th. Which is coming up, right? We just happen to have a Friday the 13th in November. Ooh. So we might uh, we might hear some Jason Voorhees lore as well. But tonight is all about Michael. So let's get into it. Michael Myers is well known in the horror genre. He is pure evil, a killer devoid of emotion. This makes him one of the most frightening legends of all time. He is human, but there are no human emotions that drive him. He just kills. It is almost as if he is a machine programmed to do one thing. He is efficient, relentless, and ruthless. He is so ruthless, in fact, that the grave cannot hold him. Is he immortal? Is death itself afraid of him? Michael, dressed as a clown, stabbed his older sister Judith to death in 1963 in Haddonfield, Illinois, and then calmly sat outside on the front steps until his parents and the police arrived. Something was triggered inside of him as he watched Judith and her boyfriend making out on the couch that Halloween night. We now know that it was the spirit of Enda, the disfigured Celtic boy whose soul was cursed all those years ago. While Michael may have been seeing his sister and her boyfriend, Enda was seeing Deirdre and Colleen. Michael waited until the boyfriend had left and then went upstairs and murdered his sister. There are a series of documentaries available for rent or purchase that cover in detail certain aspects of this Halloween tale. And some even allude to the young Myers having bad dreams and a voice in his head that tells him to hate people. But it took a lot more digging to uncover the truth behind these dreams. 
that they were from times centuries ago about a young crippled boy whose unrequited love and ridicule turned him into a merciless killer. I'm sure you have all seen these documentaries, as they have been a staple and a tradition of Halloween since the late 70s. Are you talking about the actual Halloween movies with Michael Myers? Those Those are documentaries. Halloween 1, Halloween 2... Halloween 3, I don't know what was going on there. It didn't really follow. But then Halloween 4, 5, 6, then it kind of split, exploring other timelines that perhaps may have been influenced by Myers. But yes, those those, those documentaries are, are what I'm referring to here. I think you're really stretching it here on your research. <sighs> These documentaries have been a staple and a tradition of Halloween since the late 70s. But here at T-Gulp, we want to go deeper deeper perhaps than you've ever dared explore up to this point. After the murder of his sister, Michael was placed under the care of Dr. Samuel Loomis and sequestered to the Smith's Grove Sanitarium, where Dr. Loomis and his colleague Marion Chambers determined that there was no good within the boy. He was kept there, locked away from society for 15 years until he was up for a parole hearing. Loomis is seen in John Carpenter's 1978 documentary entitled Halloween, heading to Smith's Grove Sanitarium to pick Myers up for the hearing and tells Chambers that he will be injecting Myers with Thorazine, an antipsychotic medication that would render him to a near vegetative state because he will take no chances that Michael might be released. Loomis has been reported as saying, I met him 15 years ago. I was told there was nothing left. No reason, no conscience, no understanding, and even the most rudimentary sense of life or death of good or evil, right or wrong. I met the six-year-old child with its blank, pale, emotionless face and the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. I spent eight years trying to reach him and then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. Myers escaped that day and made his way back to Haddonfield, leaving broken and bloodied corpses in his wake. He kills indiscriminately, without reason or want. He kills because that is what he does. That is what he is. That is all he knows. That is until he is confronted with something he can't process. Someone he can't kill. In the documentary series that has now spanned decades, Laurie Strode seems to be the one person Michael can't bring himself to kill. Oh, he tries, and he makes a very good show of it. But just as Michael can never truly be killed by anyone other than Lori, Lori can never truly die by his hand. Lori Strode, a virtuous 17-year-old with a penchant for reading and babysitting, was a stark contradiction to the others that Michael had killed before. Her innocence was a blinding light in Myers' darkened visage. Lori refused to die. She fought back, and this changed something in Michael. This mindless, machine-like murderer had found a focus, an obsession. Lori Strode was Michael's Deirdre. Lori Strode was born Cynthia Myers and is, in fact, the younger sister of Judith and Michael. Cynthia lived with her parents until 1965 when they were killed in a car accident. She was placed into foster care and almost immediately adopted by Morgan and Pamela Strode. Cynthia was still very young at this time and eventually forgot about her birth parents and her sister and brother. 
the Strohs renamed her Lori, and her records were sealed to protect her true identity. On October 31st, 1978, Lori's father asked her to drop off a set of keys at the old Myers place, as he was a realtor and running late that morning. Lori did as she was asked, not knowing that this was her childhood home, and the home that her brother, Michael, had killed her sister Judith in those years before. There is some contention as to whether this was the genesis of the 40-year-long conflict between Michael and Lori, or if Michael had some innate need to finish what he had started that night back in 63. I tend to believe that this right here, Lori simply being there at this time, at the time of Michael's escape and sojourn home on Halloween, was the beginning of it all. This is, of course, the first time Michael laid eyes on Lori. You see, Judith was the polar opposite of Lori, then Cynthia. Where Judith was promiscuous and rebellious, Lori was bookish and thoughtful. Michael saw everything in Judith that he despised, and everything in Lori that he adored, both manifestations of Enda's feelings for Deirdre. Throughout the day, Lori caught glimpses of someone watching her, she had a strange feeling that she was being followed. That night, Myers killed off her friends one by one and eventually met Lori face to face for the ultimate showdown. Like I said previously, Lori fought back. This was not an easy kill for Michael, and I truly don't think he wanted it to be. After a bloody and vicious battle throughout the Wallace residence, Lori was able to wrest Michael's blade from him and stab him in the stomach. She believed she had killed him, and with a sigh of relief, relaxed her defenses. Michael, however, was not dead, whether by sheer strength and determination to finish what he had started, or by the powers of the curse that the shaman had placed on Enda all those centuries before. Michael rose and grabbed hold of Lori, attempting to choke her to death. He would have succeeded, except that Dr. Loomis, who had been searching for Michael since his escape, came upon them and fired six shots from a revolver into Myers. Michael fell off the balcony of the house, and to the ground below, though when Loomis peered over the balcony to confirm his kill, Michael was gone. Lori is reported to have said simply, it was the boogeyman, and Loomis confirmed that, and I quote, as a matter of fact, it was. Michael is evil. He has always been dangerous, but now that he has a target for his rage, a reason to stay alive and keep on killing, he is more dangerous than ever. Dr. Loomis was convinced that there was no good in Michael. He is quoted as stating the following, my suggestion is termination. Death is the only solution for Michael. There is nothing to be gained from keeping evil alive. One shot of sodium theopental would render him unconscious. I'll be with him to make sure his life is extinguished. My ear to his chest to hear for myself that his vitals no longer function and immediately incinerate the body. It needs to die. It needs to die. It needs to die. Michael terrorized any and everyone who had any relation to or with Laurie Strode for years. He would often be captured or thought dead, but Enda's curse would not allow for such an end. To date, Michael has killed 121 people, and I honestly don't think he's done yet. I don't think he will stop. I don't think he can stop until Laurie Strode is dead. Four decades of killing. There are obvious questions as to Meyer's mortality, and even to the seemingly supernatural strength and endurance that he displays. Whereas some could and would attribute that to the fact that his brain simply has no governor, nothing to tell it to stop, nothing holding it back from using its full potential. Many believe that it is the very curse of the king's shaman upon Enda's soul, which now possesses Myers, that is the root of his powers. 
In varying documentaries through the years, there has been mention, albeit sparse mention, of a cult of druids. This cult that began its vile work back in 500 BC still exists today with one single purpose, preservation. It is said that one cursed by the cult of Thorn carries with them the mark of Thorn, and with it, supernatural powers. Michael bears this mark on his right wrist. Could this mark of Thorn be a symbol of Inda's cursed soul upon Michael? I believe that it is. In the producer's cut of the sixth documentary in the series, Halloween, The Curse of Michael Myers, this symbol can be seen in rare footage of Myers, and the curse is discussed in a bit more detail. So where does this leave us? The last record of Myers' appearance was two years ago. In 2018, 40 years after Michael and Lori's initial meeting, Michael escaped while being transferred to a new facility. He was old, but had lost none of his strength, nor had he lost or forgotten his obsession. For 40 years, Lori had struggled to put the events of that awful night behind her. She lost her daughter to the state as they saw that she was unfit to be a mother. She was twice divorced and was trying desperately to integrate herself into her daughter and granddaughter's life while at the same time remaining vigilant and ever on guard for Michael's return. She had spent the last 40 years of her life training, preparing for just this occasion. Michael destroyed everyone in his path, eventually coming to Lori's home in the woods. Lori and Michael battled again, but this time Lori was prepared. She had weapons and traps, and perhaps most importantly of all, she had her family. With her daughter and granddaughter at her side, Lori was able to trap Michael in the basement and burn the house down around him. Was that it? Was that the final showdown between innocence and evil that has spanned millennia? I honestly don't know. I guess we'll just have to wait and find out. As historian and documentarian, as well as Michael Myers expert, Curtis Richards so eloquently put it in his report entitled Halloween, the horror started on the eve of Samhain in a foggy vale in Northern Ireland at the dawn of the Celtic race. And once started, it trod the earth forevermore, wreaking its savagery suddenly, swiftly, and with incredible ferocity. Forevermore is a long time. Thank you all so much for joining us on this very special Halloween episode of The Great American Urban Legend. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you learned something. I know I did. I had always considered myself a Michael Myers fan, but I learned a ton here that I had never known. Make sure you all like, follow, and subscribe to our Instagram, YouTube, and podcast channels. All those links and more can be found on our Linktree page at The Great American Urban Legend. Shout out to Prairie Paranormal Podcast. Go check them out. Be safe out there. And until next time, I've been Micah. And I'm Amanda. And this has been The Great American Urban Legend Podcast. Good night. This is Mariana McClellan, and I play Eve Fallon on the scripted sci-fi podcast, Cryptids. Today, I'll be reading from one of the most terrifying books ever written by the mother of all horror. I present to you Frankenstein, or the modern Prometheus, by Mary Shelley.
To examine the causes of life, we must first have recourse to death. I became acquainted with the science of anatomy, but this was not sufficient. I must also observe the natural decay and corruption of the human body. In my education, my father had taken the greatest precautions that my mind should be impressed with no supernatural horrors. I do not ever remember to have trembled at a tale of superstition or to have feared the apparition of a spirit. Darkness had no effect upon my fancy, and a churchyard was to me merely the receptacle of bodies deprived of life, which, from being the seat of beauty and strength, had become food for the worm. Now I was led to examine the cause and progress of this decay, and forced to spend days and nights in vaults and charnel houses. My attention was fixed upon every object the most insupportable to the delicacy of human feelings. I saw how the fine form of man was degraded and wasted. I beheld the corruption of death succeed to the blooming cheek of life. I saw how the worm inherited the wonders of the eye and brain. I paused, examining and analyzing all the minutia of causation as exemplified in the change from life to death and death to life until from the midst of this darkness a sudden light broke in upon me, a light so brilliant and wondrous, yet so simple, that while I became dizzy with the immensity of the prospect which it illustrated, I was surprised that among so many men of genius who had directed their inquiries toward the same science, that I alone should be reserved to discover so astonishing a secret. Remember, I am not recording the vision of a madman. The sun does not more certainly shine in the heavens than that which I now affirm is true. Some miracle might have produced it, yet the stages of the discovery were distinct and probable. After days and nights of incredible labor and fatigue, I succeeded in discovering the cause of generation and life. Nay, more, I became myself capable of bestowing animation upon lifeless matter. The astonishment which I had at first experienced on this discovery soon gave place to delight and rapture. After so much time spent in painful labor, to arrive at once at the summit of my desires was the most gratifying consummation of my toils. But this discovery was so great and overwhelming that all the steps by which I had been progressively led to it were obliterated, and I beheld only the result. What had been the study and desires of the wisest men since the creation of the world was now within my grasp, not that, like a magic scene, it all opened upon me at once. The information I had obtained was of a nature rather to direct my endeavors so soon as I should point them towards the object of my search than to exhibit that object already accomplished. I was like the Arabian who had been buried with the dead and found a passage to life aided only by one glimmering and seemingly ineffectual light. I see by your eagerness and the wonder and hope which your eyes express, my friend, that you expect to be informed of the secret with which I am acquainted. That cannot be. 
Listen patiently until the end of my story, and you will easily perceive why I am reserved upon that subject. I will not lead you on, unguarded and ardent as I then was to your destruction and infallible misery. Learn from me, if not by my precepts, at least by my example, how dangerous is the acquirement of knowledge, and how much happier that man is who believes his native town to be the world than he who aspires to become greater than his nature will allow. When I found so astonishing a power placed within my hands, I hesitated a long time concerning the manner in which I should employ it. Although I possessed the capacity of bestowing animation, yet to prepare frame for the reception of it, with all its intricacies of fibers, muscles, and veins, still remained a work of inconceivable difficulty and labor. I doubted at first whether I should attempt the creation of a being like myself, or one of a simpler organization. But my imagination was too much exalted by my first success to permit me to doubt my ability to give life to an animal as complex and wonderful as man. The materials at present within my command hardly appeared adequate for so arduous an undertaking, but I doubted not that I should ultimately succeed. I prepared myself for a multitude of reverses. My operations might be incessantly baffled, and at last my work be imperfect. Yet, when I considered the improvement which every day takes place in science and mechanics, I was encouraged to hope my present attempts would at least lay the foundation of future success. Nor could I consider the magnitude and complexity of my plan as any argument of its impracticability. It was with these feelings that I began the creation of a human being. As the minuteness of the parts formed a great hindrance to my speed, I resolved, contrary to my first intention, to make the being of gigantic stature, that is to say, about eight feet in height and proportionally large. After having formed this determination, and having spent some months in successfully collecting and arranging my materials, I began. No one can conceive the variety of feelings which bore me onwards, like a hurricane, in the first enthusiasm of success. Life and death appeared to me ideal bounds which I should first break through, and pour a torrent of light into our dark world. A new species would bless me as its creator and source. Many happy and excellent natures would owe their being to me. No father could claim the gratitude of his child so completely as I should deserve theirs. Pursuing these reflections, I thought that if I could bestow animation upon lifeless matter, I might in process of time, although I now found it impossible, renew life where death had apparently devoted the body to corruption. These thoughts supported my spirits while I pursued my undertaking with unremitting ardor. My cheek had grown pale with study, and my person had become emaciated with confinement. Sometimes, on the very brink of certainty, I failed. Yet still I clung to the hope which the next day or the next hour might realize. One secret which I alone possessed was the hope to which I had dedicated myself, and the moon gazed on my midnight labors while, with unrelaxed and breathless eagerness, 
I pursued nature to her hiding places. Who shall conceive the horrors of my secret toil as I dabbled among the unhallowed damps of the grave or tortured the living animal to animate the lifeless clay? My limbs now tremble and my eyes swim with the remembrance. But then a resistless and almost frantic impulse urged me forward. I seemed to have lost all soul or sensation but for this one pursuit. It was indeed but a passing trance that only made me feel with renewed acuteness so soon as the unnatural stimulus ceasing to operate, I had returned to my old habits. I collected bones from charnel houses and disturbed with profane fingers the tremendous secrets of the human frame. In a solitary chamber, or rather cell, at the top of the house and separated from all the other apartments by a gallery and staircase, I kept my workshop of filthy creation. My eyeballs were starting from their sockets and attending to the details of my employment. The dissecting room and the slaughterhouse furnished many of my materials, and often did my human nature turn with loathing from my occupation, whilst still urged on by an eagerness which perpetually increased, I brought my work near to a conclusion. The summer months passed while I was thus engaged, heart and soul, in one pursuit. It was a most beautiful season. Never did the fields bestow a more plentiful harvest, or the vines yield a more luxuriant vintage. But my eyes were insensible to the charms of nature. And the same feelings which made me neglect the scenes around me caused me also to forget those friends who were so many miles absent and whom I had not seen for so long a time. I knew my silence disquieted them, and I well remembered the words of my father. I know that while you are pleased with yourself, you will think of us with affection, and we shall hear regularly from you. You must pardon me if I regard any interruption in your correspondence as proof that your other duties are equally neglected. I knew well, therefore, what would be my father's feelings. But I could not tear my thoughts from my employment, loathsome in itself, but which had taken an irresistible hold of my imagination. I wished, as it were, to procrastinate all that related to my feelings of affection until that great object which swallowed up every habit of my nature should be completed. I then thought that my father would be unjust if he ascribed my neglect to vice or faultiness on my part, but I am now convinced that he was justified in conceiving that I should not be altogether free from blame. A human being, in perfection, ought always to preserve a calm and peaceful mind, and never allow passion or transitory desire to disturb his tranquillity. I do not think the pursuit of knowledge is an exception to this rule. If the study to which you apply yourself has a tendency to weaken your affections, and to destroy your taste for those simple pleasures in which no alloy can possibly mix, then that study is certainly unlawful, that is to say, not benefiting the human mind. If this rule were always observed, if no man allowed any pursuit whatsoever to interfere with the tranquility of his domestic affections, Greece had not been enslaved. Caesar would have spared his country. America 
would have been discovered more gradually, and the empires of Mexico and Peru had not been destroyed. But I forget that I am moralizing in the most interesting part of my tale, and your looks remind me to proceed. My father made no reproach in his letters, and only took notice of my silence by inquiring into my occupations more particularly than before. Winter, spring, and summer passed away during my labors, but I did not watch the blossom or the expanding leaves, sights which before always yielded me supreme delight. So deeply was I engrossed in my occupation. The leaves of that year had withered before my work drew near to a close, and now every day showed me more plainly how well I had succeeded. But my enthusiasm was checked by my anxiety, and I appeared rather like one doomed by slavery to toil in the mines or any other unwholesome trade than an artist occupied by his favorite employment. Every night I was oppressed by a slow fever, and I became nervous to a most painful degree. The fall of a leaf startled me, and I shunned my fellow creatures as if I had been guilty of a crime. Sometimes I grew alarmed at the wreck I perceived that I had become. The energy of my purpose alone sustained me. My labors would soon end, and I believed that exercise and amusement would then drive away incipient disease, and I promised myself both of these when my creation should be complete. It was on a dreary night of November that I beheld the accomplishment of my toils. With an anxiety that almost amounted to agony, I collected the instruments of life around me that I may infuse a spark of being into the lifeless thing that lay at my feet. It was already one in the morning. The rain pattered dismally against the panes, and my candle was nearly burnt out when, by the glimmer of the half-extinguished light, I saw the dull yellow eye of the creature open. It breathed hard, and a convulsive motion agitated its limbs. How can I describe my emotions at this catastrophe, or how delineate the wretch whom with such infinite pains and care I had endeavored to form? His limbs were in proportion, and I had selected his features as beautiful. Beautiful. Great God. His yellow skin scarcely covered the work of the muscles and arteries beneath. His hair was of a lustrous black and flowing, his teeth of a pearly whiteness, but these luxuriances only formed a more horrid contrast with his watery eyes that seemed almost the same color as the dun white sockets in which they were set, his shriveled complexion and straight black lips. The different accidents of life are not so changeable as the feelings of human nature. I had worked hard for nearly two years for the sole purpose of infusing life into an inanimate body. For this, I had deprived myself of rest and health. I had desired it with an ardor that far exceeded moderation. But now that I had finished, the beauty of the dream vanished, and breathless horror and disgust filled my heart. Unable to endure the aspect of the being I had created, I rushed out of the room and continued a long time traversing my bedchamber, unable to compose my mind to sleep. At length, 
lassitude succeeded to the tumult I had before endured, and I threw myself on the bed in my clothes, endeavoring to seek a few moments of forgetfulness. But it was in vain. I slept, indeed, but I was disturbed by the wildest dreams. I thought I saw Elizabeth in the bloom of health, walking in the streets of Ingolstadt. Delighted and surprised, I embraced her. But as I imprinted the first kiss on her lips, they became livid with the hue of death. Her features appeared to change, and I thought that I held the corpse of my dead mother in my arms. A shroud enveloped her form, and I saw the grave worms crawling in the folds of the flannel. I started from my sleep with horror. A cold dew covered my forehead, my teeth chattered, and every limb became convulsed when, by the dim and yellow light of the moon, as it forced its way through the window shutters, I beheld the wretch, the miserable monster whom I had created. He held up the curtain of the bed, and his eyes, if eyes they may be called, were fixed on me. His jaws opened, and he muttered some inarticulate sounds, while a grin wrinkled his cheeks. He might have spoken, but I did not hear. One hand was stretched out seemingly to detain me, but I escaped, and I rushed down the stairs. I took refuge in the courtyard belonging to the house which I inhabited, where I remained during the rest of the night, walking up and down in the greatest agitation, listening attentively, catching and fearing each sound as if it were to announce the approach of the demoniacal corpse to which I had so miserably given life. Thank you for listening. On behalf of the Cryptids team, have a happy Halloween. Eyes to the skies. Welcome to the Spooky Tales podcast presented by me, John. And me, Louise. We have been fascinated by spooky goings-on since we can remember and wanted to share with you the stories that pique our interest. Welcome to the All Hallows Eve edition, a very spooky night. So what's the story about today? It's a collection of true spooky stories taken from a fantastic book, True Ghost Stories and Hauntings, Book 3, by Erica Gammon. Also from the 14 Times, a great magazine for all things strange, and the Guardian newspaper, who did an All Hallows Eve article in 2016. 
Our first spooky tale is from a chap called Aaron Collins in Oregon in the USA. He tells of his first paranormal experience, which was when he was just 10 years old, back in good old 1979. And how old were you in good old 1979? Well, I, I think I was 10 as well, actually. <laughs> the similar age, then. Yes, indeed. <laughs> just coming into his prime, I think. <laughs> oh, that was, a, that was, a, that was a, a laugh that said, yes, yes, he is. <laughs> <laughs> I should take that. <laughs> anyway, he went to a friend's house for a sleepover and they eventually got tired. Eventually. Eventually and eventually. settled down to sleep. And all was well until young Aaron had to get up to go to the bathroom to spend a penny. Or maybe it was a cent as we we're in America. Or is it two cents? Depending on the exchange rate, I suppose, at the time. Yes, I'm not sure idioms are subject to exchange rates. Good point. Yes, that's probably... It would get rather complicated, wouldn't it? Aaron had completed the transaction and was about to make the journey back to the bedroom. He had one hand on the bathroom door and the other hand on the light switch. He opened the door and was just about to turn off the light when he saw a woman dressed in a long black robe with long black hair and no face. Oh my word. I don't know, I don't, what? How could that be? Like a skull? To quote Aaron, I mean, there was skin pulled over her skull but there was no definition of her eyes or her mouth. The only recognisable feature was the nose. Oh, that just is too spooky. Aaron was absolutely terrified and ran into his friend's room, leapt on the bed on top of their pet chihuahua who had made himself comfortable during Aaron's absence. There was a shriek and a yelp and Aaron tried to explain to his friend what had just happened. Over the years, people have asked him if it could have been his friend's mum. What? And to quote Aaron here again, No, she had short hair and a face. <laughs> the face be the more recognisable <laughs> thing, OK? Right. Well, I've heard of headless ghosts, but not faceless ghosts. Unless, you know, like a skull, but not no features at all. I know, it's really spooky, isn't it? Well, I hadn't really uh, heard of it either. But, however, it, it isn't all that rare. Well... Medium rare. Well, okay. <laughs> okay, you don't. You know, yes, it's not like you don't open the doors and they're just there. Oh, oh another faceless ghost. ghost. Yeah. <laughs> so the Fortean Times did an article recently on the subject, saying that it's actually a classic ghost trope. Oh wow! They gave the example of the faceless white lady of Coverhithe near Lowestoft in eastern England, who haunts the atmospheric ruins of a church which dangles perilously close to the eroding cliffs. There is a faceless ghost who haunts the vaults under the South Bridge in Edinburgh. Do you remember going there? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when we went deep underneath in a sort of big bridge thing and it was quite dirty and dank. <laughs> well, you take me to all the nice places. I, I, remember, I remember doing kind of cellar walks. Was that it? Yes. Yes, OK. I don't remember it being under the South Bridge. I, I, I think it was that. It just makes it sound like we were underneath the arches. <laughs> well, that's pretty much what it was. Yeah, no. I remember it. No, I remember going down a lot, like it being kind of cellars and yeah. down. Yeah. yeah, no, it was. Yeah, no. Yeah, no. very oh, You do take me to all the nice places, <laughs> do. don't you? That was, it was a tour. It wasn't just like... Yes, I wasn't like, oh, look, let's oh, go down this cellar. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> you have a manhole cover. What's down here, dear? <laughs> no, no, okay, yeah, no, I do. I don't remember. You, you I don't, don't remember that, but. You sort yeah, of remember yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Okay, well, I'm glad I mentioned that. <laughs> anyway, my favourite is the story from a man called Tim from Hove in South England, who was driving home one night about 11 pm after finishing a late shift at his job in a care home. He's a caring man. Absolutely. Caring Tim. Yes. And he was driving up a steep hill on a cold and dark night when his lights picked out a man in high leather boots, a long dark coat and wide brimmed hat. Not someone you would forget, I think. No, absolutely. He sounds almost kind of historical, doesn't he? He does. And he was striding up the hill. Tim was careful not to knock him over in the narrow road, but stopped just after he'd passed him. Not a chance. <laughs> on the steep, done... a steep, steep hill. <laughs> I mean, that's just a nasty clutch start, isn't it? He'll yeah, start, yeah. No, go on. Then. Well, the reason he stopped was he was thinking that the man's car may have broken down. As you say, caring Tim, yeah. that the, car, the man's car may have broken down and he could do with a lift on such a cold night up a devilishly steep hill. Well, he's a nicer man than I am. Well, here, I'll let Tim's words speak for themselves. And I quote, I could clearly see the figure reflected in my door mirror still striding up the side of the road towards me and brightly lit by the brake lights. And as he grew closer, I cleared my throat and prepared to ask him if he needed a lift up the hill. And then I noticed one tiny detail. It had no face. Oh my word, that just is so frightening. The Absolutely. The hat, the coat and even the scarf knotted at the throat were plain to see in the bright red brake lights. But where the face should have been was nothing but darkness. Oh, I mean, it could be that it was just a casting of shadow, but it, and no, it can't be because well, it was reflected well, that's by just the what everybody lights. thought. That's what everybody thought. Well, surely it was, well, did he have a mask on or, you know, like a balaclava or something like that? And, yeah. And he said, no, it was because so bright right. with the brake, but the, it was just nothing there. I have to say, if you had a balaclava on, that would be quite terrifying as well. That's not, that doesn't mean <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't be reassured, <laughs> reassured by that, would you? That's right. So above the hat and below the scarf was simply nothing at all. Well, what did Caring Tim do? Did he, did he, did he give it a lift, whatever this thing was, or...? Well, really frustratingly, it doesn't say. We can only guess. What do you mean? Well, there, it doesn't say. <laughs> that was it. That was all that was that quoted. Was, that was all that was quoted in both oh. uh, the 14 Times and also the, another book that I picked up, the same story. So, Tim, if you're listening, please do contact us at the Spooky Tales Podcast at gmail.com to let us know what happened next. And we think you're caring. We do. So, so we're open to this. How is that? So this, the faceless thing... Isn't rare at all, then? No, apparently not. There was another case in Cardiff, the fabulous capital city of Wales. I remember going there. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Just if you were going to ask me. It was a good time there, yes. Um, where two faceless women have been seen at the castle. Ooh. Also, a 12-year-old boy wearing short trousers and a peaked cap. However, apart from an oval outline, there was no face under the cap. Oh, my word. And in another case near Birmingham in central England, a case from the late 1800s where a woman saw the face of a man which was, and I quote again, a mere 
mere blob of flesh devoid of any features. God, that just sounds terrifying, doesn't it? Does, it does, yes. Now, interestingly, the house was said to have been owned in 1829 by a man who supplied medical students with human bodies. So this is the, the mere blob of flesh place yes, in Birmingham? that's right. And at the time, it was noticed that some people were seen to enter the house with the owner, but were never seen to leave it again. They entered with a face, Well, yes. Yes, okay. The list goes on. A man seen in St Michael's Church in Wiltshire, a county in southwest England, whose face was a featureless grey blank, and where the eyes should have been were sunken dark shadows. Oh, my word. A 14-year-old girl at Crawley train station in Sussex, South England, saw a man whose features were lost in a whitish-grey appearance. She could not see eyes or any other features except for the nose. Oh, you really are. Just a nose floating along in a whitish-grey mist. That would be weird. Very weird. And a man who had no facial features who jumped out at a man who was driving on the road from Long Stanton to Bar Hill in Cambridgeshire in 1999. Oh, my word, that's not far from us. I know. He probably wanted a lift to Tesco's. Although at the moment it'd be a real nightmare because there's so many roadworks around. Oh, yeah. You'd yeah. actually just be able to... Oh, God, that'd be oh, even yeah. worse. Can you imagine being stuck in roadworks and that leapt out in front of you? <gasps> you wouldn't be able to get away. So why are there so many faceless ghosts? Well... A theory was put forward by Anne <laughs> <laughs> in the country now. So it's pretty, as soon as I mention West Country, <laughs> we should do a different accent per story. <laughs> yeah. Okay. A theory was put forward by Angela Jaffe, the last secretary to Carl Jung and his former patient. She wrote a book in 1963 called Apparitions, and in it she claims that there was a symbolic and psychological meaning. She thought that facelessness was a symbol of the potential inner development, the personality of the witness. I don't understand that at all. Well, as the article in the 14 Times goes on to say, now I quote again, her ideas are far from clear. I'm glad it said that, because I, that, it, I mean... It doesn't make sense. Yeah, not to me. <laughs> well, the article goes on to point out that her interest was likely to have been from an experience of the great man himself. Carl Jung was a disbeliever in ghosts until a trip to England changed his mind. Ooh, what happened? Well, he was staying in a house in Buckinghamshire, south of England, where, when lying in bed, he was alarmed to find next to him, on the pillow, the head of an old woman with her eye open and glaring at him. And I take it he didn't go to bed with this old woman? No, this was not someone he'd gone to bed with. Oh, my word. Well, the other thing was, of course, yes. was that the left half of her face was missing below the eye. Oh, dearie me! Young spent the rest of the night with a candle in a chair next to the bed, contemplating the external and objective nature of events. Yeah, he just sat there going, oh, my God, oh, oh, didn't he? <laughs> is that what you mean? That's what contemplating the external and objective nature of events is. Going, yes. oh, that's oh, basically oh. a Jungian way of going, oh. <laughs> So that's the end of another spooky tale. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this spooky tale. We look forward to being with you again next time. Please do tell us your spooky tales, either in the YouTube comments or... Via email, which is thespookytalespodcast at gmail.com. And come and follow us on Instagram at thespookytalespodcast. 
or why not visit us on our Facebook page at Spooky Tales. Thanks again. Until next time. Bye. Bye. Thank you.